welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to the show. I'm going to skip the bit today where I tell you to subscribe to the podcast and tell all your cycling friends and to download the Unfound app to join the global cycling community because I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Cummings. Steve probably needs no introduction, but he's been one of the most entertaining riders in the peloton over the last 15 years with multiple breakaways. He's had successes, winning stages at the Vuelta, two stages at the Tour de France. He's won the British National Road Race Championship, British National Time Trial Championship, all in the same year, and many, many other fantastic results racing all across the world for some of the biggest teams there are to race for. We discuss all this plus much more in a really interesting conversation and I'll cut straight to the chase. Without further ado, here's Steve Cummings. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. How are you getting on? How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Really good. Surviving lockdown? Yeah, it's a, it's, it is a challenge, I must admit, sometimes, but generally pretty good, you know. The bike, the bike keeps me sane, and it's, things are starting yeah. to move now. Like My daughter's going back to school, so uh, there's signs of improvement, I guess. A bit of routine and normality, I suppose. But I wanted to kick things off by saying huge congratulations. You must be over the moon with Liverpool's winning the Premiership last week. That's a big one for you. Yeah, it was. it's kind of overshadowed a little bit by what... By like, like we said, the lockdown and everything like that, but it was, it was huge. Um, I don't remember feeling, I didn't feel like ecstatic like I did when Liverpool won Champions Leagues and stuff like that. I think it's just because we've known for a long time, it was just a question, uh, a question of time and a matter of sort of like when rather than if. So I don't know. And then like now it, it's kind of sunk in and so many years and it, I don't know, it, it really means a lot to a lot of people because around here, you know, you're born red or blue really and that's it. <laughs> And it means a lot. Yeah. And I think for people that are listening, maybe not in the UK, it's 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 a huge thing, isn't it? And I think the story behind Liverpool and obviously with the Fenwick group as well, they, they got the monkey off the back with regards to um, the Red Sox as well. They won a World Series, didn't they, after many, many years? And it's been 30 years since Liverpool won the Premiership. Yeah. It's fascinating their philosophy around, for those that you haven't seen the film Moneyball, they've taken sort of analytics and all well, that part of it and brought it into the sport, haven't they? Yeah, they just brought that feel good factor, and everything they do seems to make sense. And they've invested. They don't. The style is they don't sort of really buy superstars. They sort of buy them developing, and then develop them even more, and turn them into superstars. And um, it's just a really good feel factor around the club and the style of football. Everyone's excited to watch. So yeah, it's really nice moments for for Liverpool for sure. Yeah, and and bringing that into cycling, obviously we're going to come and talk about where you're at with stuff and the studying you're doing. But the the psychology, the sports psychology of, of things, and just the the team ethos. You've obviously ridden for some of the biggest teams in the world. How, how does that translate? I mean, do you can you see the importance of the off the field and feel good factor as you mentioned there to developing a good team and then subsequently performance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have to be happy. You know, if you're happy you'll perform better. So creating that culture, a happy culture and sort of a winning culture, if you like, or I don't know, like a high performing cu- culture is, uh, is key. So it takes, that takes, I think it comes from the top, but, and then it, it drifts down, you know, and it, that's what I think Ineos and Sir Dave, he's the guy that sticks out in my mind in cycling, who's so good at creating that culture. Really? And that's just a, what a transparency thing or just a communication is key for that, or just generally creating a buzz and making everyone feel good about themselves and I think it's just that high performance mindset he has and um, he has experts in all those in so many different areas and no yeah. no no stone is sort of left on turn and then um, that sort of creates and it drives people to be better and that's a winning philosophy and then the athletes themselves it rubs off on the athletes and the athletes they're kind of maximizing themselves. I'm not saying it's a picnic and everyone's happy all the time, but um, ultimately as an athlete, you want to get the best out of yourself. And um, yeah, that's, I don't know, I think Sir Dave's done that really well over there. Well, for sure he has. And in terms of, so you, you've sort of gone through that, obviously you spent you spent a couple of years or a year at Sky. How has the sport developed from that side of things from when you first entered the sport up until sort of last year, just the in terms of the focus on that detail and performance and stuff like that, have you seen a massive transition? Um, I think, yeah, I think I was involved with that from British Cycling. So going like way, way back, that grew with in British Cycling. So they was in charge of everything there. So I was in that system already. So I've tried to, if if I have ever left Sky or left British Cycling, I've always had an attention to detail and tried to 
do the things in the background and find experts of my own to, to cover all bases, if you like. But, um, yeah, in, in terms of other teams, I think other teams have, have definitely closed the gap and caught up. And, yeah, I think it's been really good, beneficial for the sport, and it just drives the, the sport forward, really. And these marginal gains aren't necessarily marginal gains anymore. That It's almost like if, if you want to be competitive, you have to do it this way because otherwise you're going to get left behind. So I think... Yeah, you've got to be doing it, right? Yeah, if people haven't done it or aren't doing it already, then it's maybe, you know, you have to start... Yeah, but it's ingrained in you. It's interesting from your pursuit background. We were just speaking off air, just mentioned the your famous stage 14 win in 2015. But you talked about going back to your pursuit days, sort of closing that stage out as well, just in terms of how you broke it down and processed it. Yeah, basically, I sort of always split a race into three phases. The initial phase of getting, in this case, it was getting in the breakaway. Sometimes it's controlling the breakaway, but on that day, my objective was getting the breakaway because the race would normally be won by a rider from the breakaway. And then you come into the second phase once you've nailed that first phase. And uh, it's a different mindset. You're thinking about saving energy and you're thinking about formulating or going through scenarios of what might happen with certain riders, how they might behave, how certain teams might, how tactics might play out in the final. And then you formulate your own plan the best way to use your strengths and sort of uh, expose other riders weaknesses and, and vice versa you know you don't want people to expose your weakness so formulating a plan taking everything into consideration the road the, all the riders and then you go into that, that final phase which is you've made you've kind of made your tactic and then you just go out and deliver it and you just sort of execute and you don't you got to execute it you got to believe in it wholeheartedly right and just go for it i think that's the thing yeah i think once you've decided it's the right decision then and you've done it yourself then you sort of empower yourself to okay this is the right decision now all i've just got to do is give 100 percent. that's all you can do and you just go all in without doubts i think when when you've got doubts in your mind and doubts creep in that's when it's like ah should i go should i not go and, and maybe you you know for for a split second you don't you, you don't buy into it and then you you you, you lost you know yeah yeah <laughs> you go yeah exactly all in all in those doubts can be catastrophic so go, let's go back to liverpool 1990 and let's go back a bit in terms of your emergence into cycling because you had success at a, at a young age how when did you pick the bike up how did you fall in love with it and when did you realize you're pretty good so i picked the bike up as i think around 11 but was kind of, yeah. I think around sort of 12, 13, I started going with the club around, probably around 13 years old because of insurance and stuff like that. And uh, I went on an all-mountain bike. I, I don't know. I just I, I, I tried all sports, but I particularly liked cycling. I think it was a sense of freedom it gave me, uh, escapism and getting to places that I couldn't get to with, it, with you know on foot or whatever. And just to get out of where I was, it just felt like yeah escapism and that that sense of freedom that I really enjoyed and then I started racing 14 15 and just enjoying it really just like a natural transition and then sort of I rode for the the regional team and then the national team and uh yeah eventually it carried on like that I went on the track a little bit and uh that was good gave me structure that was sort of when Sir Dave I guess took over and that kind of changed things a lot for me in that system uh the way I thought about things and yeah, I guess I was more organized, more structured and just more professional ultimately. And then turned professional and yeah, raced a long time. It took me a long time before I got those big successes really. But eventually, you know, with hard work and good planning and dedication and resilience, it all sort of comes out in the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's because obviously you started, where did you start? Yeah. That year at discovery, didn't you? That's when you kind of, I, I, pro, I think it was 2005 with, with a Belgian team called Lambo Credit. And, uh, yeah, Lambo Credit, yeah. Yeah, it's probably, oh, I just don't want to talk bad about them, but it, it, it wasn't the best team. It was probably one of the worst teams you could be in in terms of, like, it was a small budget. And when the budget's small, it's hard to organise. So it was, it was quite difficult. And it, it was a good lesson because you, you, I had to fend for myself in many ways. Uh, so that was good. Um, and then I signed probably for the biggest team at the time, Discovery Channel. Yeah. So it was like a complete change. And uh, I really enjoyed that. But Discovery closed at the end of that year. And then I went to Barlow World. In, uh, so that was Italian managed and more Italian structure, more Italian system. And again, I really enjoyed Barlow World. And that was like another cultural, team cultural experience as well. And uh, again, I learned a lot. And 
Um, and you had a few Brits there as well, didn't you, at the time? Yeah, G was there, Froomey was there. Yeah. I don't know who else. I think that was the only Brits. And then we had like Robbie Hunter was there, Daryl Limpy was there, Gaspar Otto was there. There was a lot of good riders. Yeah, great team. Yeah. Yeah, I just remember, like, we were all young, we were all having fun, and, um, you know, you're kind of on, on on the upward curve, like, enjoying the journey, really, without too much pressure of performance. Yeah. Yeah. And then Sky was set up in 2010, and, and so Dave brought you over, did he? Yeah, and then uh, I was going to, there was a, I was maybe going to sign for Astana that year, because um, Brunel was coming back with Astana, but... Okay. I signed with, I think there was only a... Oh, of course, because you, you worked with him at Discovery. Yeah, yeah, there was only a one-year contract. At Discovery. How did you find him? I mean, he's quite, he's quite an infamous guy in the sport and yeah. quite divisive as well. How did you find working with him? Yeah, I didn't do too much with him, but he was a nice guy. That's, that's it. He just, I remember a few conversations and he was nice, uh, supportive, encouraging. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah too. I don't know. He was nice. What can I say? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and then, um, obviously, Sky for a year. How, how did that pan out? Uh, yeah, so Sir so Dave offered me two years, so I signed there. And I think it was a big finding out phase, really, those initial first years for the team. They were trying to, I guess they're always trying to innovate things. And some sometimes I think they took it a bit too far. And my first year was okay. It wasn't super. I did a good Giro and then I went to the Tour. I think that was a mistake doing... I raced, I, I raced yeah. so much. Like I did everything really. I did. I think I did Paris Nice, Catalonia, and Pays Basque, and Amstel Flesh Liège, and the Giro. And I'd done races before Paris Nice, and then I went to the Tour and I had a recamp. So I was pretty cooked actually at the Tour. Yeah. I didn't perform, and Brad didn't perform. And this was, you know, Dave had sold this Team Sky on winning the Tour with a British rider. I think Brad was seventeenth yeah. or something on GC and just miles away really so it wasn't uh it wasn't great and then the second year I was much better but I was already I'd signed a contract to leave in I don't know around about April or May or something like that I think and I got pneumonia anyway that year so I didn't I didn't really enjoy too much that last year if I'm honest it was quite difficult. You got ill and then joined BMC and then you had a, you had a I remember the cra- crash you had at BMC. Oh, that's quite early on your time with them, wasn't it? Yeah, I broke I broke my pelvis in February. It's a bit of the season yeah. that year. So yeah, I was I was flying really and then I fell in Algarve, broke my pelvis, came back in April in Pays Basque, fell on the last stage, broke my wrist, came back in uh, May, I think, for Tour of California, broke my wrist again. Then I went yeah. to Tour of Swiss. Uh, finished Tour of Swiss, and then I got selected for the tour. I don't really know how, but I did. Um, did the tour, and yeah, it was it was, it was okay. It wasn't great. I was looking out, right? Yeah, I did. he was defending champion, so I, yeah. yeah, he was a bit stressed as well. So that wasn't my favourite tour either. And then I wasn't super, and I, I didn't really live up to expectations. Yeah, um, but I think when you it was tough chasing back from a from an injury. I, I kind of wanted to ask you like how. Because that was a bad injury that one in February, wasn't it? I remember. And um... I think, yeah, I think, yeah, they're all bad. Like you, if you break your pelvis, for me, I was on the, I couldn't ride a bike for six weeks. So that's like starting, uh, that's longer than I have off after any season. So it's like starting in, I must have been the end of March before I started. And I went to Pays Basque off like two or three weeks training. It's just, Jeez. it's, it's, uh, it's crazy to think that I was, stressed about not performing at the tour because then you break your wrist and okay you can ride but you're riding on the trainer it's just it's the mental energy as well that you that you that I used to get there and I was completely done done in really I didn't have the depth so but like I say the engine was good um and I I started to come good at the end of the tour but it's a bit late and then I I think it was like the last or the second to last hard mountain stage I fell again really bad um and then they called me. I, I was in bed then because of this crash. I hit my coccyx. I fell down a, a drainage thing. <laughs> and uh, I damaged all the, I don't know, like your ligaments from your coccyx. So I had, if you can imagine, I had pain from like my knee to, to my neck. And every time I moved, I was sleeping downstairs. I lot, lost a lot of the skin. And I, I didn't go on my bike, I think, for 10 days. And then the team called and said, hey, you're a little bit short on race days. We need you to go to the Vuelta. Vuelta, no way. Yeah, the Vuelta started in 10 days. I was like, God's sake. So I went to the Vuelta and um, 
I was just like, like mentally, I was just on my knees and physically I wasn't much better either. I couldn't like push 300 watts. And then, uh, like I remember the first climb we went up, I was dropped first and I thought I wasn't going to be able to do a week in this work. And then like slowly I started enjoying it and we started having a good laugh at the dinner table and, and, uh, I had an ice cream and a beer and just relaxed and I started to get better each day and, and then like really flicking back to what you were saying before, just really trying to nail like that phase one of the race, whatever my job would be, just like really trying to get stuck into that phase one. Eventually, I think it was stage 13, we started. 13, yeah. Stage 13, we started in uh, Santiago de Compostela. It's like, you know, the end of the pilgrimage for many of us where the famous walk is. And yeah. We started there right outside the church, stage 13. I think the convoy car was... 13 i've got a feeling i was 113 something like that there's a lot of strange things going on that day anyway long story short i won the stage and um yeah i was absolutely flying and then uh, a month later i went to china and won again in tour of beijing beijing yeah, yeah i remember yeah which is a bit yeah again i was i was struggling for the first four days and instead of having a massage i went with the uh with this one year to have a beer instead of a massage just to relax and I just needed that mental break, really. And, uh, yeah, my head was just full. And, uh, yeah, I, I just tried to enjoy it, but be professional as well. And, um, yeah, won the last stage. So that was really good because that changed. That was one of my first World Tour victories. And then it, it's all of a sudden, it's like a, a light switch is flicked. You think, oh, I can win at the World Tour. Why can't I win at the Tour? And then it gave me, like, a, a belief. So, um that's that you could do it yeah definitely yeah definitely mm. yeah i didn't realize that was all in one year actually i thought it was the vault of the following year after after that tour but yeah of course that mental element though is so hard you constantly did you find that as a, as a pro almost the mental side tougher than the physical just constantly uh, getting yourself ready picking yourself up injuries down again up again it's it's quite a yo-yo isn't it up and down up and down quite tiring yeah. mentally as well yeah yeah i was on my i was I was at the end of my on my limit that year, really mentally, and um, I remember going to see a witch doctor as well in Italy. <laughs> really, I was just like desperate, you know, and anything within the rules, I would have tried. So that was, um, I went to see a witch doctor, and they, they call it it's like a thing from the south called malocchio, and uh, they said, oh, he's got malocchio, and um, this witch doctor tried to cure me of this malocchio, and. Um, uh, then I started, all my friends, in, Italian friends, bought me all these like little red chilies, which were supposed to, it was like, you know, like, I don't know what you call it, uh, where you get, what's it called, uh, like little charms, you know, like good luck thing. Uh, I had all like bracelets on my wrist and stuff like that with um, clovers on and all, all sorts of this. Like, <laughs> it just, I don't know, I just felt like I needed something extra to, to stop all this bad luck. It was like, no, I was like, no. Yeah, I know, it's one thing after the other. Yeah. And it's, it, it's kind of weird, right? Because it was probably it's probably detrimental to performance. And I've been wondering for a little bit, obviously with this lockdown and I'm sure the the current pros are incredibly frustrated, but for those that have sort of got their heads straight and thinking, okay, the tour is going to happen. It's not often that you'll have a Peloton arriving at the beginning of the tour, mentally fresh, physically fresh and good to go. It could make for quite an interesting race. What do you think? I definitely, I definitely think we'll see some surprises and you, you know, there's some guys who train, amazingly well and are almost ready to go just from training and then perhaps there's others that need a little bit more race rhythm and stuff like that but yeah i think like one thing i always found with grand tours was if i was a bit short of race rhythm i could always get it after a few days because the first sometimes the first days aren't critical to the overall well if you were going to ride the overall i was never doing that but for the gc guys you know they can sort of perhaps ride themselves in and find that race rhythm but yeah, yeah, I definitely will see throw some surprises. I'm just I was talking about before about that depth, missing that depth of spring and racing, and, and that might affect people later on as well. So be really interesting. I, I think though, like nowadays, that people can train so well and so precise and look at workloads and all that stuff. And there's a number on everything that you know the people who are organised will get it spot on the same. Yeah. Yeah they'll get to the levels they'll get to the numbers they'll put the efforts in to get where they were because you've got the historical data right they can look back and exactly. on that and see where they're at and exactly exactly i mean you mentioned a bit of like the, the mental element but you know there's solutions for that as well um so yeah I, I i envisage i don't envisage riders like let's say from Ineos 
just I'm only picking them out just because I know the system and I know the riders that I don't envisage them, you know, being way off the pace or anything like that. But perhaps other teams I don't know may may struggle a little bit more, you know. Yeah. With with the increased sophistication, obviously you've seen it throughout your career. You mentioned you mentioned try, you're trying a witch doctor in, in times of mental strain, but you must have seen like many sort of fads and phases throughout your career that have popped up and then sort of dispersed again. What are the sort of ones, are there any that stick out of the things that everyone said, this is, this is the kit, this is the next best thing. And it's just sort of faded away, be it sort of technology or training or nutrition or. I think what, I think one of the most ridiculous things for me, and it remains the same, I, I, there's nothing that really jumps out at me. One thing that I say, oh, that's really crazy. Sometimes there was some things around diet and stuff like that, where I remember once, I don't want to mention names or teams, but we had to do a ride in training camp and we it was no breakfast ride, so fasted, nothing, only water, coffee. We went out and we had, it was like two hours and we had to do some sprints and the idea was to sort of like empty the glycogen out of the muscle. And um, then we went back, ate some cheese and something like that. It was like no carbohydrate, just like cheese. And then we did another session a few hours after. And the idea was to train the body when it was completely depleted. And I don't know, that, that just seemed... I don't know the science behind it or the science probably makes sense, but in reality, it's so far from what you're going to yeah. race. There's stuff like that, that, that in a way that just seemed ridiculous because also it was like, I wasn't going to go home and do that. <laughs> you know, it was just like, it was just like a one-off doing it at a training camp, just sort of jumping through hoops to keep someone happy. You know, it just seemed a bit crazy. Uh, but the, the, the other things that the main thing I think is when they bring new, whether it be, nutrition whether it be equipment whether it be something else they bring it out like during the biggest race of the year just before or even during like halfway through say oh let's try this <laughs> and it's crazy yeah, you buy it, you go. <laughs> it's crazy because no one really knows how it's gonna what's gonna happen you know <laughs> so, so i just to be testing stuff at the biggest time of the year that's that's probably the most ridiculous thing in my eyes <laughs> absolutely crazy so after bmc it was to Quebec in your uh, distinctive Newcastle tops in those early years, weren't they? Yeah, Juventus. Yeah, yeah. Um, Juventus tops. Yeah, Juventus tops. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how did that move come about? Uh, actually, so yeah, the management changed in BMC, so I went from like really happy to to not super happy. And um, you know, someone new comes in, he just doesn't rate you, and you kind of your writing's on the wall. And I was struggling, and and uh, to be honest, I was struggling to find a team. And then um, Brian Smith contacted me yeah. and uh, that came up in September. To be honest, I was actually thinking I was going to maybe stop, you know, and then um, Brian, really? yeah, Brian called me and um, they offered me a good deal. I just had enough of it as well. I just, I think mentally I was just like, I was just sick of, uh, I don't know, it just seemed so, we can talk later a little bit about the cycling model and how it creates uncertainty and just those short term contracts and, yeah, like you say, if you if you're unlucky one year with with um, injury or performance and doesn't things don't happen, then you've literally you've got like maybe you've got six months to prove yourself before you know the writing's on the wall. It's just real high pressure. So I guess I was just a bit sick of that, and also I felt like I'd worked so hard and never I don't know just never managed to quite get it out. I mean, I got did the, the work and stuff like that. I got it out there, but signed for MTN and then things from day one. Even before then, things just really went well for me. I, I really clicked with Brian. He was really good. We'd speak regular, which was fantastic for me because any I used to get frustrated um, with people around me because I was always like putting everything in, and if if the bike wasn't ready or if something wasn't quite right, I'd get really frustrated because I felt like oh, they weren't they weren't putting in a hundred percent, which is what we needed to 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 maximize the team, you know, and ourselves. So that used to crack me a bit and he, he really helped me with that and he'd, he'd get on things and he'd chase things up and chase people and it just let let left me feeling good and brought me to the racing good like met physically and mentally really well and yeah i won my first race with ntn with the in mallorca with the yeah. valverde and then i was just really consistent all spring i think i was top 10 in tirano and i helped louis Menches win Cupri bartoli and I was just enjoying it. Dauphiné, we did did a good race. Teclamana had the King of the Mountains. Eddie had the green jersey. I think Eddie maybe won a stage. Well. I can't remember. But, you know, for um, a wildcard team, this was all amazing stuff. Yeah. 
uh, and then it accumulated in the in the tour because I had to be on it to get selected for the tour. Really, I had to be really super on it. You know, we had a lot of good riders really, and they wanted because it was an African team and what the team was about. They wanted to take a large percentage of African riders, which was fair enough. So it just meant being European there was only limited spots, and we had a lot of good good riders. You know, like Matt Goss. Eddie, Tyler Farrar, there's, there's a lot. Of, yeah, it's a great team, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of good ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm, what happened then? What happened then? Stage 14, talk us through it. I mean, that's yeah. we, we put it out there if anyone's got any questions for you. And, and Yeah, yeah. yeah. By far the majority are of, on, are of that day. I mean, it's such an iconic day. Nelson Mandela Day, it all just came together, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly that, really. Uh, we spoke about it earlier, about how I'd split things into phases and how I felt in... In that tour, our object, the team objective was purely stages. And I had uh, sort of put crosses on five with Brian, you know, and we, we said like these five, we try and get in the break and try and go go for the victory on these days. And I was running out of days. I think it was the third day. Yeah. And I'd, I'd, I'd been so, like, so frustrated with myself because there were days where I was like, ah, I should have got in the breakaway, should have got in the breakaway, never quite did it. And again, it was it, it was a weird one because it was almost like it took me till stage thirteen till I felt I actually felt like on stage thirteen, like again a switch had gone and, and I started to feel good. Thirteen days into a grand tour, <laughs> and then weird, isn't it? yeah, yeah, and then and then yeah, and then as I know on the day, chaotic start, a uh, few climbs up and down, everyone fighting to get in the break. Brent was fighting to stay in the peloton. Uh, it's quite risky. The race is like really open, really, really full. You know, you can imagine the helicopter might be out and motorbikes and cameramen and just chaos, really. Chaos. Very, very, very hot as well at those days. And uh, eventually I got into the breakaway. I know a lot of good climbers, Simon Yates, Uran, Pino, Bardé. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, it's a great group. I don't know why it sticks it. I don't know if it was, obviously, for me, obviously, British rider. And then obviously... Quebecer as a team, that was a great story. It, it just all culminated together to end up being quite an iconic stage. You know, whoever you're supporting, it was just a, such an exciting finish as well. Yeah, you know, coming in those last corners, you're like, what? Why is he on the front? What? You know, what's he doing? Like, and, you know, it's like everyone was biting their tail. Someone wrote in and said they ruined a sofa <laughs> during the end of that, <laughs> during the end of that stage through jumping up and down. But it just it was just really exciting to watch. I'm sure when you're in the zone, you probably didn't feel it. But have you, have you looked back on it and, and sort of, can you see that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Have a look back. I think um, that finish is kind of iconic anyway. Sometimes they have it in Paris Nice and they've had it in the tour a few times. Um, and it, I think it was an interesting stage as well because there was the battle for GC behind as well. Things were happening like Valverde and Contador and Froome and ev- they were all moving as well. So there was almost like two races. Like we were coming to the top as they were at the bottom. And, yeah. And I think that, that added to the suspense, if you like, because th- it was almost like they couldn't have enough cameras on the road because people were going forwards and backwards. And, uh, it was all over the place, wasn't it? I think Quintana had a big and I think Froome. I was like sort of initially let's say dropped from the group but i'd say like smart pacing strategy so i was like gone and everyone's like, oh bloody hell that's it that's it then switch the tv off kind of thing and then um like one by one you know i was picking them off picking them off picking them off until at the end uh managed to catch them both and then yeah i guess the final yeah like you say some people like what's he doing in front but yeah i, I had a good plan it was all um well yeah good plan right decisions and just executed it really well i think all under control is that pursuit background power for the line. Yeah, we didn't know that at the time, though. <laughs> yeah, I just I think there was a, a number of factors that maybe made that decision. Like one was like aerodynamics. I knew that I'd, like that was really polished. I'd put together myself on the bike it was really polished package, and I felt if I could just get a little gap with my power on the flat and my weight compared to the other, I'd just pull away from them mathematically. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I guess that, that's what going back to what we said, where you, you just really commit. You have a plan, and you just really commit to it. But also, I had I, I knew anyway that I'd win the sprint. I, I don't. Know, I just felt like with a K to go, I just felt like I wasn't going to lose because it, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Although you did it again the next year. <laughs> yeah, it's different. I came as like a different animal. I was just like um, I, I again. It was a it was a mental thing. I just realised bloody hell, like I'm strong. You know, I'm I'm much stronger than. I thought once I can 
get it down, you know, get get consistency, and and I just tried to be consistent, and that definitely 2016 was my best year, and it coincides with me not having any injury or illness, and yeah, and from February till September when I I did crash in September, but <laughs> uh, from February. From February to September, I was winning like every month, but not just like winning world tour races. You know, and it's bonkers, really, because not not many people can do that. It, no matter if you're a climber or a sprinter, and I wasn't either. I was just someone in between. So, what I mean, going going back to both those stages, I mean, do you consider them your your best days on the bike, or, or are there other sort of less celebrated days that you either enjoyed or just felt stronger at? Obviously, got the nationals yeah. as well. But what 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 are your favorite days? What are your favorite memories from from your racing career? I think results-wise, they were probably the best. They obviously they're the best 15, 16 t- stage wins in the tour. But performance-wise, in 2017, that period when I won the like the nationals at the time trial and then the road race, up, yeah, went to the tour and I, I think that was the day Tom Simpson died. So I was alone with quite a long way to go still, but. We did a climb called Port de Ballet, which was quite interesting because that's the climb I'd crashed on some years earlier uh, with BMC. So it, in my, it was for me, it was a memorable thing that I'd come back, crossed that climb, which is an HC in the Tour first, alone in the front of the Tour de France, and um, that was the Queen stage of the Tour. And like in terms of power and stuff like that, well, that was probably the, the highest numbers I ever reached, but I didn't win. But um, yeah, that was 2017, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think as well, like uh, I smashed my shoulder. You know, I had two surgeries. So, well, in the beginning, because I was going to say, because at the beginning of the year, didn't you? You had a big crash in 2017, didn't you? Yeah, I hit a bollard at like 50k an hour and smashed my collarbone, sternum, and scapula. And I, I had a surgery in my collarbone, and then a few weeks later, I slipped at home and needed another surgery on the scapula. So. I was, I hadn't ridden on the road. I was strapped. They strapped me to the turbo trainer, like from the roof. Because <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't put any weight through my, so I was riding strapped with my chest and I was still making like good power. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I was just riding non-handed. <laughs> and uh, then when I, I got back on my bike, my first road ride, I remember, was 10 days before the national champs. And I, when I went out on the road, I felt a bit funny. My balance wasn't quite there because I hadn't ridden on the, and, um, yeah, I mean, I knew I was really good physically, and I just I was training the same amount, the same intensity. Everything was the same as what I would have done on the road. I was doing it on the trainer, strapped to the roof, basically. <laughs> wow! Yeah. And you just felt you you came into it sort of fresher, I suppose, despite the injury in that regard. Uh, uh, fresh, fresh was never, never, never good for me. But uh, I just came into it. I was just super motivated. I was just determined. I knew. Like I was 36, I knew I didn't have that many years. I knew from the previous year, from 16, that if I could just get there, I'd have a chance to win another stage. I, I don't know, I guess it was just that period from, let's say, from 16, where I just felt like when I was in top shape, under on the right road, on the right road, under the right conditions, if I created the right race for myself, then I'd win the bike race. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, from from like you have to put this in context. So it, I couldn't win on like Alp Duos or anything like this. Just want to say if it was on the right kind of roads under the right circumstances. So like a breakaway stage or something like that. So something you yeah. like, really design yourself into. It didn't really matter who was there. I just felt like I could find a way to win. Yeah. You mentioned there you were sort of conscious that you were you were thirty six at the time. Obviously, you you hung up your wheels uh, end of end of last year, wasn't it? What, what, when did you start preparing or thinking about retirement? Obviously, you mentioned that prior to signing for Quebec, you'd first thought about it. But this time round, when did you start the planning, and what what were the plans, or are there any plans? Where, where are you at with things, and how long did that process take to get to the retirement piece? Probably quite late, actually. I probably I started planning for retirement when it was two thousand and eighteen. Really, I, I, I don't know. I just came to a point where I, I felt like I don't want to say I'd mastered cycling. I didn't feel like that, but I just felt like I just felt like on top of it, where it was just like a process I'd go through, and I'd come out the other end with top shape, ready to win. I mean, I was still looking to improve and still looking to make things better, all aspects. But I just felt like I needed more, so I wanted to start studying. So I started studying, 
And in, yeah, 2018, where are we now? I think 2019, I, I wasn't studying at the tour, but that year I, I did, did my first year at uni. So I think that was the, they were they were the times when I started thinking, which is crazy really, because the one thing that's sure in any athlete's career is that eventually you're going to retire. So that was the first time I'd really thought, oh, bloody hell, what am I going to do when I retire? I, I guess <laughs> you're just stuck in a in a bubble when you because you're doing what you love and I was so passionate about the bike and I love riding the bike and I loved the preparing and I, I just loved it I don't know it's just it's just like my I was living the dream literally so were you ready to retire when you when you finished no I don't sound like I do no I wasn't I wasn't really I, I didn't want to stop I didn't want to stop but at the same time I, I was acknowledging that Every time I fell towards the end, I'd break a bone, and I, did, I wasn't falling particularly more than anyone else. It just uh, when you're young, you get up. When you're old, because you've been on a bike and you've been on these calorie restricted diets for so many years, and your your bone density is dropping, I'd just break. So um, I'd actually looked at putting a protocol in place and seeing what we could do with bone density, and there are some things you could do to try and improve that and stop that happening. But in the end, there was no opportunity, and the career ended with four broken vertebrae really huh. and so i didn't realize that so do you so that the sort of being so conscious of your weight the whole time and obviously cycling reduces bone density as well that that's a that's a recipe for disaster is it or it just makes it tougher uh i just i think um yeah you know like high volumes of training and being and it's it's not impact as well it's like yeah yeah exactly that reduces yeah that doesn't help is it and then you get off the bike and you sit on your bed because you rest and you yeah, but I think a lot of riders have a low bone density when they finish their careers. Yeah. Um, so with the study, what is it that you're studying again? It's um, I'm studying business and sport management. Yeah. And how are you finding it? Yeah, I love it. It's all it's kind of all related. I mean, um, it's nice to go into other sports and look at other sports and what they're doing and and see like this definitely transferable things and look at business and see see what what's happening in business and yeah, really. I, I enjoy it it's helping me sort of explore and look for the new the next chapter yeah and that's I mean I find that I've spoken to a few cyclists and I think when you are in such a high performance environment for so many years and having to deal with such adversity and challenges and travel and quite stressful situations and then you think about potentially like moving into the, the business world as, as you mentioned I think it's easy to underappreciate just how transferable and how valuable your skill set is in terms of taking that into a into a corporate world if you can you know find someone that's understands that and and sees those skills then it can be very powerful in across any industry really yeah i think i think so i think there's uh there's you know there's things we obviously as sports people you can learn from business and vice versa um sometimes people just want to hear your story you know not not necessarily when it went well sometimes when it went wrong and how you dealt with it and stuff like that because perhaps people can associate to that more than things going really well so yeah i worked we worked quite closely and i put together a corporate speech as well which was due to i was going to run that out and um unfortunately because of the covid thing every all that's gone gone now really at the moment but it was, a, yeah, I, it was like a nice process to go through you know like downloading all your career if you like and and, and just sitting there thinking bloody hell I, it's all right to do to not do a great deal for six months you know just just take it easy or a year or whatever you know just take it easy and just I don't know. Are you okay with that though? I mean, are you okay sort of doing nothing, having had sort of every day probably planned out for the, the, the previous sort of 17 years or whatever? Are you, how are you finding the relaxing piece and switching off? Do you have days where you're climbing the walls and finding it very frustrating, particularly at the moment, but just generally? Yeah, I think, I think with me, I'm a, a, I think because I wasn't really a guy that, if someone said do this, Steve, I'd always sort of question, I'd always say sort of why, you know, maybe I wouldn't be good in the army in that sense. <laughs> But I was, I was always questioning why. So, and I couldn't, I wouldn't really buy into it if it was just, uh, unless I understood it. So I always wanted to understand things. And I, I like to take ownership of everything around me, of my program and my, my performance. So I think that's helped me a lot because it's the same now. I still see it a little bit the same. I still, I want structure because if I don't have structure, I don't have order. If I don't have order, it's going to be chaos. And uh, I need to be, yeah. I need, I need that structure. And so I still ride my bike, not as much as I did, like maybe half, maybe not even. And yeah, I try. I, when I start studying, I start my watch, and I have an X amount of time where I'm going to study. So I try and be. Uh, the structure's the same in, in many ways. I, 
but it's going to be utilizing that. I mean, I can, I can tell just from the chat we've had today that you'd love analyzing your, your own performance and how you can get better, even from going to speak to the witch doctor and stuff. And, you know, to have that kind of critical thinking, a lot of people tend to, particularly in that I can talk from the business world, obviously can't talk from a cycling world, but we'll look for the path, the path of least resistance where it sounds like you, you'd like to get to understand or get to the bottom of it and, and figure out the best way forward. And that's a pretty valuable thing to have in a, in a business environment. You just need to find something to, to channel that focus on, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I just, just try and ask the right questions of myself, really, and, and I think, yeah, like you say, I think that's quite useful because sometimes people like tradition and like culture takes over and sometimes it's it's not the best way to do something. Sometimes there's better ways of doing things. Yeah, exactly. And challenging whatever the process is in place, right? I think sometimes people take a step back and challenge it. Yeah, keep keep learning, keep moving forward. And always, I always like one eye on outside what's happening in other sectors. What are they doing and how, how can we utilize what they're doing? It's what they've yeah exactly how, how you can bring it in and um yeah and that's kind of interesting because i'm going to open a can of worms now and and i w- where are your if we were to take a sort of critical eye in terms of the structure of cycling as it is at, at the moment and what what would you change or what do you think needs to be changed to improve the welfare of the riders and the sustainability of the sport welfare riders i just think uh... It's it's a really difficult question, and I'm not I, I'm not super happy giving an opinion because I I haven't looked into it enough. But the, the things that I do think is like we don't have crowd like funding, you know, like invasion sports. They have a stadium. We don't have that. So our model is really we're reliant we're reliant on like rich or big sponsors coming in, and often it's short term. You know, there's no like longevity, and that just creates uncertainty. Short contracts. And that's, that's, that's going back to like what I was saying at the start, where you're only sometimes if you're a neo pro, it takes you. Let's say you get two year contract, takes you maybe if you're coming from Australia or someone like that, maybe it takes you a year to, to find your feet in Europe, to find somewhere to live, to find. Then you've got sort of six months to prove yourself the next year. You know, it's, it's the time frame's so short, and that yeah. that is really uh, how. But yeah, it's easy to point out problems. But the solutions, I don't know what the solutions are, really. Um, there's so many different, as you've got the RCS, a- ASO. I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer. It's so conflicting, isn't it? And it's, I, don't, I don't think it's, I mean, I think the one thing about lockdown is that it shows that all sports aren't, aren't immune to it. I think cycling infrastructure issues are, are well documented. But I was listening to even even rugby. This is a topical situation within rugby in terms of short-term contracts. And I was listening to Ellis Genge on House of Rugby podcast the other day. And, and there's, they're trying to figure out the best way forward there as well. You know, players only having one-year contract. How, how do you build that sort of longer term as an athlete you need to look after yourselves and the way the, the sports structure doesn't necessarily lend to, to that being the case and um, with cycling there are so many different parties all with different agendas it makes it so so difficult for for athletes coming through to plan a career or to basically get the best out of themselves you know even even you just to sort of talking through your career there you've had some incredible successes but I'm sure there are times you said that you probably raced because your team told you to race when you really shouldn't have and you were knackered mentally, physically, you know, that it's, it's so challenging, right? Yeah. 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 No, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Going back to the business model, I don't really know what the best business model is for cycling. I think there's, I personally, I love the tradition of the sport. So I love all the iconic races, the iconic roads, but at the same time, I do acknowledge that perhaps from a business point of view, cycling has to grow and go to these new countries and new areas to attract new sponsors so i just think it's about finding the balance but i I don't know i don't know whether they could finish races on circuits and charge to go in the circuits i don't know how that would for sure at first it sounds crazy and all the public are going to kick up a fuss but in reality people don't like change you know but once they get used to it it's all right but you can imagine the tour de france if everyone was to pay a pound for watching the tour de france yeah be a different war game altogether i think <laughs> yeah no you would do and i've said i think i mentioned the podcast before then the other avenue is trying to embrace technology to try and create a different revenue stream be it through content creation or be it through something that gives the teams themselves. So i don't know whether you franchise the teams and then build a system that gives them a revenue 
generation through i don't know highlight packages through an app or something like that there must be you know people are using technology for good in many different ways so there must be something there that that can help the sustainability of the sport otherwise it's going to get difficult if it's just relying on sort of wealthy corporate sponsorship year in year out yeah exactly and i just think as well like some of these big sponsors they come in and it's maybe it's not super clear because the uci are always changing and chopping and changing and the uci aren't like i don't know sometimes it doesn't seem they're um i don't know like they apply the rules <laughs> sometimes that they're you know i don't know their interpretation of how they apply the rules isn't perhaps as it should be and uh, i don't know it leaves like this window of unknown and, and things are unknown and that's not that's not a good place to be in you know people need to know where they are so they can commit yeah i think yeah it's tricky, isn't it? And obviously, this this year racing hasn't really happened. But prior to lockdown, were you tuning as an in as a fan and, and watching the racing? And how did that feel after so many years on the other side? Yeah, I didn't. What did I watch? I didn't really watch. I don't think I watched anything. To be honest, no, I don't think I did. Uh, I think I was just busy. <laughs> I don't think I watched anything. Nothing jumps out at me that I watched. No. We've got, um, I've got a few questions that, that people have written in that I can put to you if that's all right, if you're open for those. Yeah, yeah, sure. So rim or disc brake, what's your preference? Right at this moment now, I'd pick rim brake, but in the future, I think disc brake. Really? Still rim brake now? Well, for me, it was always, the bike was a bit too heavy with the uh, disc brakes. Disc brakes, for sure, they work better, no question, um, but... Rim brakes. You as a performance, as a racing cyclist, you want your bike to be six point eight kilo, and um, yeah. it just. I never found the disc brake bike that was at my size, but perhaps it exists in other models. I don't know. Very good. And did you keep bikes throughout your career that you raced on? Yeah, yeah. I kept. Uh, I have. What I got? I got like. What have I got? I got uh, a Cervelo from two thousand sixteen that I bought, and that's it. Really, that's the only one I kept. Anyone kept and which which is your favourite bike you've raced on throughout your career? I have to say that bike just because I had the, the the most success. It suited my style. It was like an aero bike. It was pretty light. Yeah, but also I did like the BMC SLR, the the rim brake version. I thought that was really that was again that was kind of like an all round bike. It did did everything. It was sort of comfortable, stiff, light. And I, I don't know. I like that bike as well. I got a question from the Peak Talk, which is a YouTube channel. I don't know if you ever seen it. Have you seen them? It's worth checking out. Uh, he's a, a friend of Unfound. He's an engineer who does some really interesting videos around technology, aerodynamics, and all things engineering. But he said, given your propensity to chill at the back of the peloton, um, you're clearly comfortable following wheels. However, were there any wheels that were slightly more sketchy? Any nationalities or any particular riders that you're always a little bit wary of? Uh, yeah, for sure. But I don't really want to name names or, you know, but um, in the end, I think as a rider, you, you start, it's better to look for who the good ones are, try and follow the good ones. Um, follow the good ones, yeah. Yeah, and it's the same like in the peloton. It's better to look for sort of gaps as opposed to obstacles. Otherwise, you'll find just hitting an obstacle. Yeah, or bollard at 50 kilometers an hour, as you yeah. found out intimately. Exactly. <laughs> um, which is good. And just in terms of all the incredible riders you've you've raced against over the years, who who are the couple that really stood out as sort of next level ability and talent? Um uh that's a good question um ability and talent i don't know probably i really like vincenzo nibali because he, he kind of can do everything and he's kind of done everything yeah yeah and he's not afraid to light a race up as well go for it is he no i just i'm just drawn to him because because of the diversity of what you know what he's won he's won classics he's won grand tours yeah he can yeah, i don't know i just really like nibali he's he be my he'd be my number one Sorry to the... Is he a nice guy as well? Sorry? Do, is he a nice guy? Yeah, yeah, he's very good. Yeah, yeah. He, has, he lives not a million miles from me in Italy, so sometimes I see him. And uh, yeah, very nice. And are you still spending time in Italy? Well, not the minute, but we, we, we're due to go... We will do. Yeah, as soon as we can. I think August, maybe, we're going to go back. Yeah. I was going to ask you where your favourite place in the world is to ride a bike. Is it Italy? Uh, <laughs> pretty boring, yeah. Italy, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And someone else has asked, what, what's the what's the funniest thing you've ever seen racing or on the bike? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't see too many funny things, but one memory that sticks out was Matt White bought um, he bought uh, ice creams in the Giro, mid stage in the Giro. It was a long stage, you know, one of those really long, almost like a transition stage, two hundred yeah. plus kilometers, pretty hot. Uh, break had gone, I don't know, 
let's say four French riders that brake was going nowhere and um, he went back to the mechanic and, and got some money and then he came back to the front of the peloton peloton was all in like one line and everyone was kind of having a bit of a chat stopped at a bar bought some ice creams got the ice creams and was giving all the ice creams out to the riders i think that's one perhaps not super funny but it's just like a nice memory that i remember and that like when i think back now and watch the Giro, it, it does kind of it is kind of funny because uh it seems like there's no space for that anymore no do, do you think the sport has changed in your time uh, definitely, yeah, definitely. I think, like as I say, the, the level's gone up. I just think it's due to that, like that approach of like leaving no no stone unturned. Yeah, every yeah, everyone's everyone's totally on it, right? So just, no... And just looking into every everything, you know. And... Is it less fun now? Do you think? Uh, I think there's more. There's like a. I think there's definitely an extra stress, and I think it's only going to get more and more. It's like if you're not at altitude, you can't compete. So like. People are uh, riders live at altitude. Perhaps careers will get shorter because maybe they'll just be fried mentally because it's just like race, altitude, race, altitude, race, altitude. It's a big. That's a big demand on on family life as well. Yeah, of course. Talking of which, is that I can hear? Is that your daughter? I can hear in the background. Yeah, yeah. I'm just doing a bit of homeschooling as you do. <laughs> Multitasking, Steve. I like it. I like it. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for a chat. Have I missed anything? Is there anything that uh, you wanted to mention or any questions? you've got no no that's great thanks jules yeah really appreciate it really good stay in touch won't you let us know how you're getting on and what you're getting up to and if anyone is interested in getting in touch with you either from a corporate speaking perspective or, or any other perspective can we drop have you got a website or a, your i don't know your instagram can we put that in the show notes yeah instagram or just my, my email address is on my instagram page so i'm doing most of them my let's say promotion or whatever you want to call it through instagram cool excellent so you can get in touch with steve if you've got any questions you want to book him for a, a post lockdown um corporate chat or whatever i'm sure he'll be more than happy to come in and yeah we'll go from there so stay in touch mate let us know what you're up to and we'll hopefully speak soon no doubt thanks jules all right mate take care thanks steve thanks a lot thanks for listening please subscribe to the podcast and more importantly don't forget to download the unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub we'll see you on there